0: Ask anyone, parents of newborns are some of the most sleep-deprived folks around. Like Matt, who once was so sleep-deprived that when his wife asked him for the pacifier in the middle of the night, he put it in her mouth. And she was so sleep-deprived that she took it, no questions asked. (coughs) There is no rest for the weary, but there is a rest that has been granted to each person who believes and accepts what Christ did 2,000 years ago.
1: Well, Even though there was no rest for the weary in Christ, even in death, even in the tomb, it's because of what he did on that cross, what he did by lying in that tomb, what he did when he came out of that tomb, you and I can now experience the rest of our lives.
0: Welcome to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp. Here, we hope you'll find answers to some of life's everyday struggles. You can learn more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. Despite that Jesus's lifeless body lay in a tomb, there was as much life in him in death as there was in life. This week, Charles Tapp reveals one of the great mysteries of the resurrection story with his message, No Rest for the Weary.
1: Outside of room number 306, at what used to be the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, there is a plaque that quotes a portion of scripture from the book of Genesis. Room 306 is where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spent the final night of his life on April 3rd, 1968. As history goes, King was standing on the balcony of the hotel when a single bullet from an assassin's rifle took his life. Later, they turned this hotel into a museum to commemorate the life of Dr. King. But just outside the room where King slept, there is now a plaque which reads, Behold. The dreamer cometh. Let us slay him and see what happens to his dream. You don't have to be a Bible scholar or a theologian to know that this quote originates from Genesis chapter 37. And is a reference to Joseph and his jealous brothers when they saw him coming off in the distance. And we know that they were jealous because he was their father's favorite. Now, some of us are under the delusion that we're the favorite child in the family. If we're honest as parents, we love all of our children equally, do we not? (laughs) You took too long to answer that. Hopefully, we love all of our children equally. But if we're honest, there's one child that we just get along with better. That's just reality. Just like you as children have one parent that you get along with better. Some of us think we're the favorite, but we're not. One parent even told their child that they were the favorite, and at a reunion, the child said to the other siblings, mom always told me I was the favorite. Really? Well, she told me the same thing. <laughs> but when it comes to Joseph here, there was no strong delusion. He was Jacob's favorite son. But what caused this jealousy to intensify all the more was that Joseph would Share with his brothers these dreams that he would have that kind of hinted at the fact that that one day they would have to bow to their younger brother. But as we know, instead of taking his life, these older brothers sold him into slavery as a way of ridding their lives of both Joseph and his dreams. But here is the premise behind this diabolical plot in their minds to dispose of the dreamer, either by death or by slavery, would also dispose of his dreams. And I'm sure that this is the logic that was probably behind those who plotted to take the life of Jesus as well. For when you read the gospels, especially the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it becomes very clear that Jesus basically had one central message that he would share. And that message was simply this, that the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And lately we've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God as we've been going through our series on the parables of the kingdom. But we know that the kingdom of God basically has two ages. There is the present reality that you and I can be part of the kingdom of God now by allowing God to rule and have reign over our lives. But then there is the latter or the second stage of the kingdom of God, and that is when Christ returns to this earth and sets up his kingdom for all eternity. But what made Jesus' message so challenging is that it did not align with how many perceived the kingdom of God should be. In their minds, the Messiah or the anointed one would come and overthrow their oppressors, in this case, the Romans, and set up his own physical kingdom here on this earth. But when Jesus arrives on the scene and begins to complicate things regarding the kingdom by saying things like, well, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is really within you. And that's not what they wanted to hear. And on top of that, in their minds, Jesus did not fit the bill of what a king looked like, or what a king should be. Because Jesus' message of the kingdom was about loving your enemies, Jesus' message of the kingdom was about turning the other cheek. Christ's message of the kingdom was about picking up your own cross and bearing that. So in their minds, to rid themselves of the dreamer would also rid them of his dreams. But with the death of Jesus on the cross, we don't witness the death of a dreamer but we witnessed one of the most decisive moments of the kingdom of God, not in the death of a dreamer, but in the death of the king. A king who was convicted by a kangaroo court of a crime he did not commit. A king who was condemned to die by the very people who just one week earlier cried out to him as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, Hosanna, 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 being translated, Lord, save us, those same people. A king who was beaten by Roman guards within an inch of his life, stripped of his clothes as well as his dignity, and he was hung on a cross between two criminals. Let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 61. Look at what the word of God says here. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become what? A disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his what? New tomb. We'll come back to that in a minute. And laid it in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed verse 61. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Now, let's just provide a little context here. First of all, Jewish law forbade that the body of an executed person to be left on the cross during the night. So it had to come down by sundown. But here's the problem. Here's the dilemma. Jesus' family didn't have any property or any tomb in Jerusalem. They weren't from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee. And if there was no tomb to place the person's body in, they would just dig a trench in a field and dump them with all the other bodies. So they had to find somewhere to put Jesus. Verse 57 of Matthew 27 says that there appeared out of nowhere a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And I say he appeared out of nowhere because nowhere else is he mentioned here. He just pops on the scene and then disappears. But this is what we know about him. First of all, Matthew says that that he was a wealthy man. Secondly, he says that he was from Arimathea. And we don't know a great deal about Arimathea. But then lastly, it says, and this is what I believe is the most important fact they listed about Joseph. They said, and he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Joseph, in my humble opinion, did a very courageous thing when he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And I say courageous. Imagine the mood Pilate must have been in with everything that had already taken place earlier that day, even that week. And now one of the disciples had come to ask for the body. Where were the other disciples? They were afraid. They all scattered. So he was putting his life on the line. That's courageous. But here's how I define courage. Courage doesn't mean you don't have any fear. Courage means you have fear, but you do it anyway. That's courage. And that's what Joseph had. He had courage because his life was at stake. But also, from seeing what Joseph did, it presents to us as believers what I believe is one of the pivotal principles to what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because for him to go before Pilate as a disciple of Jesus and ask for the body of Jesus, he knew he was going to have to pay a price. I'm sure he probably thought maybe with his life, because they were looking for anyone who was associated with Christ during this time. But as we read later, it says that he gave Christ his tomb, not just any tomb. It says he gave him his new tomb, a tomb that had never been used before. Now, I already know what you're thinking, Ross. You're thinking, well, that wasn't really a price. There was no cost because Jesus rose from the grave and he could have the tomb back. (laughs) Ross is a very astute guy. But you see, if you were accused of a criminal crime and executed and put in a grave, a tomb, that tomb could never be used again. Historians tell us that Joseph's tomb was close to the city. Now, if you know anything about real estate, What are the three most important words you need to know? Location, location, location. That's why the properties in this area, if they're near the city, if they're near a a, a bus station, if they're near the subway, they cost. It's all about location. So when Joseph said, put him in my tomb, listen to me, Joseph was demonstrating One of the greatest principles of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because when you and I truly become a disciple, it is going to cost. Discipleship never comes without a price, without a cost attached to it. For some, it may be losing family members, it may be losing friends, it may be losing your way of life or tradition, but there's always a cost when you and I decide to follow Jesus with all of our hearts.
0: You're listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, No Rest for the Weary. And if you're enjoying this message or you'd like to find others like it, you can find out more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. We'll conclude with the rest of his message right after this.
1: Man, when I think about WGTS, I think about family and uh, WGTS lifts me up. The whole crew has truly been a blessing in my life and I'm forever grateful for WGTS and what they do for myself and for the community.
0: our support makes a difference i
1: always uh, encourage people like you want to listen to something to be encouraged when you're going through a tough time to 91.9 um, they are definitely up with the spirits and uh especially in the triumph time we're in right now in society working together to
0: impact the nation's capital we are
1: family. and i am forever grateful for, for the WGps family because that's exactly what it is family and we get to be a part of that as listeners which is
0: Listener-funded, WGTS 91.9. Always encouraging at 88.3 on the Eastern Shore. This is simple truths for life. And when Jesus's lifeless body lay in the tomb, there was as much life in him in death as there was in life. This week, Charles Tap reveals one of the great mysteries of the resurrection story with his message: No rest for the weary.
1: Discipleship never comes without a price, without a cost attached to it. For some, it may be losing family members. It may be losing friends. It may be losing your way of life or tradition. But there's always a cost when you and I decide to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. But Luke reminds us when he says, to whom much is given, much is required. Let me just share this with you. As we draw closer to the end of time, and that's very close, as believers, it's going to cost us dearly for being a disciple of Jesus. Notice I did not say for being a Christian. Well, pastor, aren't they one and the same? They can be, but not all the time. I can be a Christian. I can accept Christ. But if I'm a disciple, it means I'm willing to pay the price for accepting Christ. And every Christian is not willing to pay the price. In this country, within our borders, we've been sheltered for for too long. Others throughout the world are losing everything because they decided to become disciples of Jesus Christ. But the time is coming, even in these United States, and it will not be very long, where you and I are going to have to pay a very high price for what we believe and who we believe. Which is why Jesus said in talking about discipleship, he says, listen, before you build the building, do what? Count the cost. In other words, before you decide to be one of my disciples, you better figure out if you're willing to pay. Let's go back to Matthew 27. I want to look at just three verses here, 62 to verse 64. Look at what it says. On the day, on the next day. On the what? Next. On the next day. Underline that phrase, next day. On the next day, ah, which followed the what? Day of preparation. So the next day he's talking about is the day after the preparation day. Preparation for what? The Sabbath. So what's the day before? Friday. Stay with me. This could easily be translated this way. On the next day which was the Sabbath, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will do what? I will rise. Look at verse 64. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. I hope you are already ahead of me. The chief priests, the Pharisees go to Pilate to request a guard to be stationed by the tomb because they're afraid that the disciples are going to come and steal his body. But they go to render this transaction of their business, listen, on the Sabbath. In other words, they're going to Pilate on the Sabbath. They should have been in the synagogue. But they go to Pilate on the Sabbath to say, put a guard by him because of what he said about being raised after three days on the Sabbath. Sabbath. And this wasn't just any Sabbath. For if you read closely, this was a high Sabbath because it was also during the time of the Passover. So these men of God and these men of the law were so determined to defeat Jesus, they were willing to break the Sabbath commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But that shouldn't be surprising. Because even in Christ's life the main point of contention between the religious leaders and Jesus was always over this one issue of the seventh day sabbath. Not if it should be kept, but how it should be kept. Turn quickly to Matthew chapter 9, chapter 12, rather, verses 9 to 14. Because if I don't let you read this, you won't believe me. Now, when he had departed from there talking about Jesus, he went into their what? Oh, Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Hmm. And behold, there was a man who had what? A withered hand. And they asked him, saying, these are the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus. Is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. Stay with me. Verse 11. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Okay? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, Jesus says, it is what? Lawful to do what? Good on the Sabbath. Stay with me, because we're not there yet. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, like one day I'm going to do my arm when it's fully healed. And he stretched it out, and it was what? Restored as whole as the other. I'm not finished yet. Here it goes in verse 14. Jesus heals the man, frees him, relieves him on the Sabbath. How do they respond? Glory, hallelujah, praise God? No. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Some translations say kill him, take his life. Now, here's the issue. They had no problem with trying to kill Jesus on the Sabbath. But they had a problem with Jesus using the Sabbath to heal and to restore. And when you look at all of Jesus' healing miracles, they were all done on the Sabbath. Now, these are men... I'm trying to get you to understand their mindset, that worshiped the Sabbath. They didn't worship the God of the Sabbath. They worshiped the Sabbath. So much so, they created 39 rules, prohibitions, to help them keep the Sabbath. When you get a chance, Google it, 39 Sabbath prohibitions. One of them was, it was unlawful for a woman to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Okay, men, everybody look up. Don't look next to your wife. Don't look at to your wife. Just look up. I'm not making this up. It was unlawful for a woman to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. I'm not going to ask the men why, because they'll get into trouble. Why, ladies? Because she might see a gray hair, be tempted to pluck it out, and plucking was agricultural work. I'm not making this up. And agricultural work was forbidden on the Sabbath. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because these men worshipped the Sabbath. But they didn't see anything wrong with plotting to kill Jesus on the Sabbath. And they didn't see anything wrong with going to Pilate on the Sabbath to get a guard to be put by the tomb. Why? Because more than anything, They wanted to destroy Jesus. But what they did not understand, I don't care how many gods they would have placed at that tomb, Jesus had just as much life in death as he did in life. You see, they were afraid of the rumors that may have gotten started if someone had taken his body. They would have thought that people would have believed that Christ had been raised from the dead. But what I find interesting is, when Jesus was alive, they would not let him rest on the Sabbath. And now he's dead in the tomb, and they still won't let him rest on the Sabbath. For there's no rest for the weary. But here's what I love about the gospel. For even though there was no rest for the weary in Christ, even in death, even in the tomb, even while his lifeless body lay there, It's because of what he did on that cross, what he did by lying in that tomb, what he did when he came out of that tomb, you and I can now experience the rest of our lives. And the rest that I'm talking about is the eternal rest of salvation. And that's what the Sabbath is really all about. It is God's reminder that God is not only our creator, he is our redeemer and our sustainer. He is our salvation. Look at what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. For if Joshua had given them what? Rest. Then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, talking about God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So what is the rest that the writer of the Hebrews is talking about? He's talking about the rest that you and I can experience as citizens of the kingdom of God. Just as the Israelites, when they went from the wilderness into Canaan, the promised land, it was called entering God's rest. Well, God also has a promised land. God also has a rest for us to experience. And it's not just when he returns. For just like the kingdom is now, but it's also later, the rest that God has promised each one of us is also now and later. How is that? Because if you and I accept Christ and what he did for us on the cross and what he accomplished for us when he came out of that tomb, I can experience salvation, not later. I can experience salvation right now. I'll never forget working in Northern California one summer as a youth pastor still while I was in college, in East Oakland, anybody know East Oakland? I'm walking down Foothill Boulevard, minding my own business. And I'm hearing this church-like music. I don't know where it's coming from because I don't see a church anywhere. When all of a sudden, this young lady jumps out of nowhere, takes out her Bible, sticks it in my face, and she says to me, are you saved after I got over the initial shock. <laughs> I said, yes, I am saved now. I don't have to wait for Jesus to come back. And she left me alone. Are you saved? Are you afraid to say you're saved? If you're afraid to say you're saved, you don't believe in the power of the cross. It is because of the power of the cross that I can say, I am saved. I'm experiencing the rest of God now, because if I'm not experiencing the rest of God now, instead of trying to work out my own salvation through my own works, I will never experience the rest of God then. For the child of God, the cross is everything. It's not one thing, it's everything.
0: You've been listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, No Rest for the Weary. And if you want to listen again or share it with someone, you can find these messages on platforms like Apple Podcasts and now also on Spotify, or visit us online at simpletruthsforlife.org. Now here's what we're working on for next week.
1: God's abundant love for us is the one thing which not only gives us the strength to handle the difficulties of this life, but it also helps us to deal with life with grace and
0: maturity that's some of what charles tapp will share next week with a special easter message titled because of love well thanks for listening and we hope you'll plan to join us again next week for more simple truths for life